1: it's been a long time coming but now the first two recreational marijuana shops on the east coast have opened their doors
2: we are so excited to finally be here today you know this is really about uh, acknowledging that there is now a place for cannabis in our society and that place is no longer in the shadows
1: from the new england news collaborative this is next we'll discuss marijuana in massachusetts and what's next for legalization around the region Also, after explosions in the Merrimack Valley, we'll explore safety and our gas infrastructure. The potential for these
3: types of situations is much greater in the wintertime when there's a frost cap,
1: when all the gas is on. Plus, how affordable is your electricity? Your rates may be high, but what about your bills? And at a bad time for bats in our region, what can we learn from their calls? It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky, thanks for joining us. On Tuesday, November 20th, more than two years after a referendum to legalize marijuana, two recreational marijuana shops opened in the state of Massachusetts. What followed? Well, long lines and a lot of excitement. I'm probably just going to buy a couple joints and an edible. This is about the
4: spirit of the the gesture, you know?
5: I think it's wonderful. I think it's good for everybody, good for the state, and uh, good to get out of the shadows and into the light.
2: What a moment. Uh, We are so excited to finally be here today. You know, this is really about uh, acknowledging that there is now a place for cannabis in our society, and that place is no longer in the shadows. That was the first time I smoked marijuana and decided, wow, this is really good stuff. And why should I have to sneak around and face jail time and so on and so forth just to sit back and smoke
4: a little cannabis? So since I was 13, yeah, I've been waiting to legally buy marijuana. What a concept, huh?
1: That was John Carter, Ralph Raposa, Amanda Rosatano, and Eric Liedberg. Also there on opening day was Dan Adams. He's the cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe. He joins us now. Dan, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Why don't you tell us about these two shops, first of all, the first two that opened up last
6: week? Sure. Well, they're, they're both uh, currently operating as medical marijuana dispensaries. So they've been in business for some time, and now they've gotten permission to add the recreational component uh, to their operation. Uh, of course, as you can imagine, with only two stores uh, open in the whole state, or actually two stores open in the entire eastern United States, the lines are long, demand is high, and people are coming from all over the place to check it out.
1: Yeah, we've been reporting on long lines at the dispensary uh, called Cultivate in Leicester, Massachusetts. A lot more traffic than people in that town were expecting.
6: Yeah, I was at an emergency meeting, and uh, some of the residents there, uh, none too pleased about the crowds complaining about uh, long lines of traffic, uh, you know, people urinating on their lawns because they've been stuck in line for so long, things like that. Um, And so the town is uh, trying to make some changes to its operations plan there to address those concerns. Uh, Of course, as I pointed out in my story in The Globe, really the only thing that's going to make a difference is more stores opening to alleviate some of that demand.
1: Okay, so when will that happen? It's taken this long to get two stores up and running. When will we start to see more?
6: That, that's the only question anyone asks me these days. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's likely that we'll have another store or two or three perhaps by the end of the year, uh, but this is going to continue to be a deliberate rollout. We're going to see dribs and drabs here and there, but we're not going to suddenly see dozens of stores open up at once.
1: What's the process that they still have to go through? What,
6: why does it take so long to roll more out if there's this huge demand? <clears throat> Well, they've got to go through a really extensive uh, review process by the state, the Cannabis Control Commission. Um, They've got a long list of regulations that they've got to make sure these businesses are complying with, everything from the labels on the packages to the security systems and cameras that they've got set up to um, inventory tracking systems that, uh, you know, from the moment they plant a cannabis seed, it's associated with an RFID tag, and it's assigned a unique number, and that plant is tracked all the way through its uh, growth cycle, uh, through being processed into other products, you know, like an edible or something like that, um, and then packaged and sold. And they can trace that throughout the entire supply chain. So all those things are sort of being put in place. They do multiple inspections throughout this process as the stores get closer to opening or the other marijuana businesses get closer to opening uh, to make sure that they're in compliance with all those rules. And um, there's just a lot of rules. It takes a long time to, uh, to check for these things.
1: What were the sales like on opening day and opening week? Were they uh, more than expected? We had long
6: lines, but were they they selling more pot than we expected? I think the sales were more or less in line with what the businesses expected. If you ask them, if you ask the two stores, there were about $440,000 worth of marijuana products sold uh, and more than 10,700 individual products. Certainly, the demand is very high. And and as we noted, uh, these are the only two stores on the whole East Coast. And we saw license plates there from as far away as, uh, you know, Delaware, Virginia, someone... um, uh, you know, I heard someone came from Kentucky, so we've got folks from all over the place just coming to check it out. Some people aren't even coming to buy the marijuana. They just want to sort of see the scene, um, and they feel like this is sort of history happening in front of their eyes. Well, it gets to this other point about the the, the taxation part of this, the $440,000
1: of money that customers spent at these two stores turns into about $75,000 to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, That tax take is something that other states are taking a look at. What are we hearing about states like Connecticut, uh, New Hampshire, which is, of course, uh, uh, famously averse to taxes, Rhode Island and, and others, as they think about whether or not to go legal like Mass.?
6: Yeah, I think Massachusetts and the advent of legal marijuana sales here is absolutely driving the conversation in surrounding states. I would say in particular, actually New York. Um, and these states are thinking to themselves, many officials there are thinking to themselves. Well, we've got our residents crossing the border into Massachusetts, spending their dollars there, um, putting money into Massachusetts's uh, tax coffers, and you know why not get a slice of that for ourselves? Certainly, not everybody agrees with that, but um, I, you know you see the conversation happening right now in Vermont, for example. Vermont has uh, what I call legalization light, in other words, they've made it legal to possess and use and buy marijuana, but not to sell marijuana. There's no system of regulated sales there. And folks there can also grow it at home. And I think officials in Vermont are are saying, you know, why are we letting people go over the border to Massachusetts and um, give that state uh, their money when, when we could be doing the same here? We're also hearing
1: from the brand new uh, governor-elect of the state of Connecticut, Ned Lamont. Here's what he had to say when asked about Massachusetts sales.
2: I don't want the black market controlling uh, marijuana distribution in our state. I think that's uh, a lousy way to go. You know, Canada, Massachusetts, others are doing it. That's going to lead to some uh, enforcement things. Uh, in the meantime, we enforce uh,
1: Connecticut laws. And we heard from at least one buyer, Charles LaBelle from Coventry, Connecticut. He was waiting in line to buy recreational marijuana in Massachusetts this past week.
3: Ned
7: Lamont, um, the new governor in Connecticut, he's talking about he, he very much supports legalization in Connecticut for recreational purpose. And as a tax uh, income thing, it's it's. I mean, Massachusetts just opened up the new casino, so Connecticut's got to do something to compete.
1: It's really interesting, Dan, because uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut have been fighting over the opening of this brand new casino in Springfield, Massachusetts. Connecticut trying to build something to maybe forestall some of the people who'll be driving north to go to that. Do, do you see a change maybe
6: happening in Connecticut where they don't want people going north to buy legal pot? It's certainly possible. And uh, like you said, the new governor there is very supportive of legalization or the incoming governor, I should say. And, you know, I think that th- they're definitely just going to keep looking to Massachusetts and, and, tra- and potentially trying to outdo us here. The, you know, the problem in, in Connecticut, though, is that there's no ballot initiative process. Unlike in Massachusetts, where people were able to sort of force a vote on this issue, Connecticut is going to have to do this in its legislature. And I don't know that there is a complete agreement within the legislature about doing this yet. One of the things that's really important and really
1: interesting about this has nothing to do with long lines of people Uh, who've been waiting to buy pot for 30 years, as we heard off the top. But it has to do with some of the criminal justice implications of, of this legalization, something you've been following very closely. What's happening as far as criminal justice reform that's coupled with legalization in the state of Massachusetts?
6: Sure. Well, if you look at the history of the enforcement of marijuana prohibition, you'll see that, you know, those laws were disproportionately enforced against people of color. And even though, for example, uh, white people and black people use marijuana at more or less the same rates, black people were incarcerated at much, much higher rates um, for doing the same things that white people were doing. And the law in Massachusetts explicitly recognizes that. It, It calls the war on drugs a mistake, and it directs the Cannabis Control Commission to put in place measures that will allow people of color and people from communities that were disproportionately impacted by prohibition where arrest rates for drug crimes were higher than average. And and it it allows them uh, sort of a leg up in the licensing process. The the problem has been access to capital. These small businesses can't go to a bank the way another small retail shop might and get a loan. These buildings are very expensive to construct. Uh, It takes a lot of money up front to be compliant with all the regulations to have all the equipment in there. It's uh, especially expensive to grow it if you want to have uh, you know, the air conditioning systems and lighting systems that are required to do it well. And so those efforts, uh, while well-intentioned, have sort of been hobbled by the lack of access to money for some of these businesses. And so what we've seen is that the initial wave of businesses opening in Massachusetts are all largely white-owned businesses, businesses that are owned by established interests, people who already have access to money or already have money. And that's something that's really concerning to advocates, and it's something that they're looking closely at and trying to devise potential solutions to. And
1: let's just be clear, they can't go and get a loan because even though Massachusetts is legal and it's taxed now under state law, it's still a federal controlled substance. It's really hard to go to a bank and say, I need a couple million dollars to buy a new marijuana
6: processing plant. That's right. They they would they would throw you out pretty quickly if you said that. Um, and it's because of federal law. They the banks are federally regulated. They're maybe FDIC insured, and uh, they are very nervous about uh, sort of touching this industry. Even providing simple services like a checking account and the ability to do payroll uh, for these companies is something that only a few institutions are willing to do, um, and none that I know of in Massachusetts are willing to make a loan to these businesses. And so again, that's that's really holding back some of the efforts at getting disenfranchised folks into the industry.
1: A last thing for you, Dan, you've mentioned Vermont already. We've talked about Connecticut and New York. Maine, of course, also passed a ballot initiative that would legalize marijuana, and that's been very slow in rolling out as well. And then, of course, Canada, the entire country, is is legalizing marijuana as we speak. What do we see as the future, the next uh, year or three in the Northeast, As we go beyond just a few pot shops in a few little Massachusetts towns to something that's much, much bigger. I mean, what are you looking at as far as trends? The
6: trend of public opinion is extremely clear, and it has been for a long time, which is that public support among voters for marijuana legalization is growing. Uh, Support for medical marijuana is well into the 90% range, I think 94% the last poll I saw. Support for legalizing adult use or recreational marijuana is somewhere in the 66, 67% range, something like that. And what's What's interesting has been the the slow realization of the political establishment. That, that is the case they, they have not necessarily been very responsive to voters, and that 's why we 've seen most of the states that have legalized marijuana have done so through a citizens' ballot initiative, not by the action of the legislature. Vermont is the only state um, that did this uh, through legislation but I, I think that a new generation of political leaders is is now coming to the forefront, and I think that uh, as that Turnover happens slowly and inevitably, we will see more and more states move in the direction of regulated marijuana sales. Dan Adams is the cannabis reporter for the Boston Globe, and we'll have links
1: to more of his reporting at nextnewengland.org. Dan, as always, great to talk with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Those lines for weed in Massachusetts, well, they're not the only people anxious to get in on a previously illicit activity. Less than one hour south of that shop in Leicester, in Lincoln, Rhode Island. That state has become the first in the region to offer legal sports betting at Twin River Casino. John Bender of the Publix Radio is there. This makes Rhode Island the only state in New England to offer legal sports betting,
7: and fans were lined up on opening day to try the first above-board operation in the region. Dan Deleuze of Seekonk says he's been waiting years for legal sports betting.
8: At least you have a chance to win money, you know what I mean? As opposed to casino gambling and all that other stuff, forget it. You have a 50-50 shot. Anything else, forget it. You might as well throw your money on the ground. What's your what's your kind
7: of limit? What's your whatever I have in my pocket? His first bet against the Boston Bruins. Sports betting is set to expand to Twin Rivers' second location in Tiverton on the Massachusetts state
1: line in December. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Bender. Coming up, how affordable is your electricity and how safe is your gas? We'll find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The natural gas disaster that ripped through three communities in the Merrimack Valley in September and the pipeline overpressure emergency in the town of Woburn, Massachusetts, weeks later have focused attention on our region's aging gas delivery system. It's one of the oldest in the nation. Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities has ordered an independent examination of that state's entire gas distribution infrastructure. Now, keeping those pipelines operating safely is the job of utilities and union workers who detect and repair leaks. But since this summer, there's been additional stress on the system. National Grid, the largest utility in Massachusetts, has locked out more than 1,000 union gas workers, over a contract dispute. WBUR's Bruce Gellerman spent a day with one of the company's veteran gas pipeline workers, who's also a union official, and he has our story.
9: We're entering the season when the 21,000 miles of gas pipelines that crisscross the Commonwealth are most vulnerable to leaks that can lead to disaster. The
3: potential for these types of situations is much greater in the wintertime
9: when there's a frost cap, when all the gas is on, John Bonaparte has worked for Massachusetts Gas Utilities for more than three decades. He's also president of one of the unions whose 1,250 workers have been locked out by National Grid. The company replaced them with managers and contract workers, all certified to work on gas pipes. National Grid says its policies and safety procedures exceed federal and state standards. But after the Woburn overpressure problem in October, the Department of Public Utilities imposed a moratorium on National Grid's new work, pending a review of the company's safety practices.
3: You're talking about situations that are literally sometimes life-threatening, so you have to think on your feet. And I'm going to walk you through a couple of these today because I don't think a lot of people know the things we face in the field. This is Broadway and Silver Street in Malden. This area has some of the oldest gas lines in the country. This is the first house I evacuated as a gas technician, probably almost 30 years ago now.
9: A neighbor smelled gas. Bonapani got the emergency call, rushed to the scene and knocked on the door. No answer.
3: One of the things you're taught, when you don't get an answer at the door, you insert your leak detection probe in through the mail slot. So I did that, and I pumped it, and I pumped it, and I saw the needle start to go up.
9: And up, and up. Bonapane began banging on the door. He heard an elderly woman say, hold on. She opened the door, and I, I
3: strong smell of gas right in the face, and I grabbed her coat, picked her up, brought her outside, it was very cold, I put her in my van, which was parked right here, ran back in the house, started opening all the windows. That was the first experience I ever had like that.
9: It was not the last. Massachusetts winters are tough on gas pipes. Frozen ground can crack brittle cast iron and snap bare steel, creating leaks that can range from small to deadly and be difficult to detect. Frost caps buried in the soil can spread leaking gas far and wide.
3: I had a gas leak in this building. It wasn't serious but you know, we found that there
9: was a pipe leaking in there. John Bonapane seems to recall every gas emergency he's ever responded to. Stopping frequently, we tour blasts from the past in Malden, Melrose, and Stoneham. This house here was completely
3: demolished from a gas explosion. What uh, happened? I think it was a broken gas main, and it was cold, it was in the wintertime, and the gas migrated into the house, and um, you know, any, anything can ignite, could be, a light switch, it could be the doorbell. And that's why one of the things they tell us, you know, when you respond to a gas order, you don't ring the doorbell.
9: You know, it's interesting because most of the time, you guys are invisible. The pipes are invisible, the service is invisible, and you guys are invisible.
3: And it's really thanks to the people out in the field because if you don't have the experienced workforce, that institutional knowledge that's imparted from one generation of gas workers to the next. So that it doesn't happen again, right? You, you got to learn by what happens. Are you doomed to repeat it? It's so true. It's one thing learning in a book or a
9: classroom.
3: It's completely different when you're learning in the field.
9: Bonaparte's mobile phone rings a lot these days. Locked out union members are monitoring national grid replacement workers at job sites video recording alleged safety violations. If that soil that was removed is contaminated, that's a major no-no. Calling in from East Boston is Rocky Leo, a gas worker with 32 years of experience in the field.
6: And again,
9: right now it is not active. I'm going to see if that's going to be active. All right, let me know.
3: Every person that does what I do, for as long as I do, has their own stories where real serious incident was prevented
9: every person for example rocky leo the main was down 11 feet deep there was 60 pounds blowing leo tells the story of a near disaster in maplewood square in malden he was working for keyspan on a broken high pressure gas main i had to get into a hole that was three foot in diameter and there was a crew above watching but at that depth They had no way of pulling me out of the hole if it ignited. That was about a dozen years ago, just before British-based National Grid bought Keyspan, creating the largest utility in New England. And at the time, the company did not have any safety harnesses or tripods. We actually had to wrap a street chain around me. It's a chain that we lift steel plates with. National Grid stresses safety is job one and they have state-of-the-art technology. I think National Grid will say, look, these are times past, you know, and we are really much better now. We are a bigger, better company. Well, in
3: some respects, things are better. Certain types of protection, like a fire suit, breathing apparatus.
9: John Bonapane's acknowledgement that safety has improved with National Grid is a small but meaningful sign in a dispute where finding common ground has been nearly impossible. Another point of agreement, in the aftermath of the Columbia Gas Merrimack Valley disaster, both Union and Utility agreed the state's Department of Public Utilities should require all gas companies to have the same work safety procedures.
3: All the companies kind of do things a little differently, and I think that's part of the problem in Massachusetts, that the DPU has allowed these companies to operate differently. Um, In my opinion, there should be one standard of operation for everybody, like a code. There is no code? Well, there's different regulations that they have to follow, but each company develops their own manual on how to meet those regulations, how to follow those regulations. And I think that's the
9: problem. National Grid shouldn't have to learn by Columbia's mistake. That deadly mistake was a powerful reminder that while pipelines are out of sight, natural gas is a product that demands respect. And as we enter the winter high season, National Grid is still dependent on replacement gas workers. With little time off and under intense scrutiny, they're stressed. And locked-out union workers are strained under the cost of health insurance and their unemployment checks running out. The last time union gas workers in Massachusetts were locked out was a quarter century ago. It lasted 17 weeks. This one is in week 23. And National
1: Grid's lockout grinds on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Bruce Gellerman. Winter is coming. In fact, it may already be here, and in New England, that means bigger bills for heating and electricity. It's also true that year round, our region's electric rates are higher than just about anywhere else. But compare New England to the rest of the country, and it turns out those bills might not be so bad after all. Joseph Daniel is a senior energy analyst with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. He's been studying the rates and the bills we pay, and he joins us now from Washington. Joseph, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Let's start with some of the maps you present, because I think it tells maybe the starkest story we can about electric rates and electric bills. And and let's start with retail electric rates. And tell us about the places in this country on this map that have the highest electric rates. Well, the
8: highest electric rates are really isolated to sort of two corners. One is the West, California, Alaska, and Hawaii. And the other is the Northeast, starting up in New York and going throughout New England.
1: And why are the rates higher in these two distant
8: extremes of the United States? Well, there are a lot of factors that go into electric rates. And the point of my analysis is to show that there's been a long-standing tradition within the industry to focus on rates. Customers are often referred to as rate payers. But when you look at your electric bill, you don't necessarily look at every single light item. You look at the the bottom line, the the bill. And rates don't necessarily indicate how much the average consumer spends on electricity.
1: So then you look at the map that you've shown of electric bills. And while some of the same places, like my home state of Connecticut, uh, have both high bills and high rates... Much of the rest of the map looks quite a bit different. So explain why this is.
8: There are a lot of states in the Southeast that have low rates and some of the lowest rates in the country, but have correspondingly the highest bills in the country as well. You know, Mississippi really pops out, uh, so does South Carolina. And that's because the people, the consumers in those states have on average consume more energy. And so their bill ends up ballooning. Because they consume so much energy. This is a factor of housing stock as well as energy efficiency policy. The Northeast has very aggressively pursued energy efficiency. And what that does is helps individual consumers reduce their own bill. And so if you don't consume as much energy, your bill is lower.
1: Now, you go into a third element here, one that we probably don't think about that often, but maybe is is the most important. There's there's rates and then there's bills, but then there's electricity burden. What exactly does electricity burden mean? Well,
8: electricity burden is about looking at how much of your income is going to electricity. It's largely connected to energy burden, which is a much broader term about all of the different things you spend on energy, including gas heating and Gasoline for your transportation. So that's a sort of broader term. And I wanted to look at well, I have all this data. I wanted to see how much of your electric utility bill, how much of your total income is going to paying your electric bill.
1: And, and with this analysis, you see something that, that looks a little bit more like the electric bill map, but it also has some standout places, places where the, the burden is quite a bit lower and some places where the burden is quite a bit higher. Take us through that, if you would. Yeah, it's almost
8: the inverse of the rates, uh, interestingly enough. You have states like California and New York and most of New England that have high rates, but the burdens in those states are all below 3%. But in the Southeast, most of the states, particularly Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, it's well over 3% of your annual income is going to paying your electric bill.
1: That's an awful lot of someone's annual income. And it seems as though that would make the ability to, to pay these utility bills on a regular basis, on a timely basis, really, really difficult.
8: Yeah. And it's important to note that nearly one-third of Americans struggle to pay their energy bills. And there are dire consequences to when energy becomes unaffordable. Families have to decide, do I run my AC or buy food? No family should be forced to have to make those types of decisions.
1: Another problem with affordability for lower-income people is that if you don't pay your bills, you might have your gas, your electric shut off, and that causes a gigantic disruption to to people's lives. How do we deal with that issue? Yeah, that's an incredibly important issue.
8: Uh, like I said earlier, you know, as energy becomes unaffordable, people have to decide: do I run my AC or buy food? And it's important to note that you know, just last week, the latest National Climate Assessment uh, was released, and it makes it clear. That if climate change goes unchecked, Americans are going to need their AC on a lot more days of the year.
1: You know, we can't afford to ignore affordability. I'm wondering what you think about this, this movement, especially in this part of the country, in the northeast, toward much more of a gas energy economy. The, the cheap and plentiful uh, natural gas that has come to this region has meant an awful lot of old boilers that used to be run by oil are now running on gas. That's a home heating solution for many more people in New England than it used to be. But at the same time, gas is also going to fuel the big power plants that are keeping our lights on as well. And so it seems as though electricity, home heating, it's also tied up in this one fuel source. I guess from your vantage point, I'm wondering if you think that that's a a net positive or a net negative for a region like ours.
8: There are legitimate and important concerns about the reliance on natural gas, particularly when it comes to price. Uh, The price of natural gas next year is largely unknown. It's unpredictable. And it's also volatile. And so when you have a fuel that is both hard to predict the price and volatile, customers end up being exposed to potentially much higher prices. The way to protect customers against price spikes and against the volatility is by using less natural gas, which means you can, one, energy efficiency, but also solar and wind and offshore wind and other diverse
1: resources can help reduce the reliance on natural gas. What else came out of that climate assessment that has you concerned and and has you thinking about how we might, you know, remake our our energy mix here?
8: Well, you know, I work for the Union of Concerned Scientists. So I guess I guess we've always been concerned. <laughs> but I think I actually take away something a little bit different because my work and my research really focuses on the energy sector. And there are lots of opportunities to reduce carbon and reduce energy bills to make energy more affordable. You know, I, I'm thinking about a recent Indiana utility that found that, you know, the, the faster it retired its coal plants and replaced those coal plants with solar and storage, that the more savings they could deliver to customers. And that, that finding was, you know, very similar to the one that we found in um, Illinois in a report called Soot to Solar that found, hey, turning off these coal plants and replacing them with energy efficiency, solar and storage will save customers money. And there's a lot of old, dirty, expensive power still being produced. And the faster we can get rid of that and replace it with clean energy, we can get back on the right path to a lower carbon economy that produces affordable energy.
1: Joseph Daniel is a senior energy analyst with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. And there's a lot to be concerned about these days. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Since we've been talking about this new climate change report, Maybe we can bring you some good news. Well, it's not great news because it involves a much maligned invasive plant called Phragmites. The tall, bushy-topped reed is enemy number one of many ecologists and environmental groups spend big money trying to keep it from taking over wetlands. But emerging research shows that Phragmites might have a shot at redemption and it concerns the plant's complicated role in climate change. WBUR's Barbara Moran has our story.
5: Oh, this is serious Phragmites.
10: <laughs> this is a story about a bad guy who might have a shot at redemption. Its name is Phragmites australis, an invasive plant commonly known as the common reed, or as some call it, the all too common reed. Is that Phragmites up there?
5: Everything here is Phragmites along here, and there's some on that side. There's always a lot of Phragmites.
10: <laughs> Robert Bucksbaum, an ecologist with Mass Audubon, has been fighting Phragmites for decades. One battlefield is the Rough Meadows Wildlife Sanctuary in Rowley, part of the largest salt marsh in New England. We head in.
5: I don't think it'll be too wet for you. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah.
10: The plant is a familiar sight in New England marshes, where it typically stands about 13 feet tall. It crowds out native plants, destroys habitats, and clogs streams. The state, Mass Audubon, and the National Park Service all have programs to combat it, but it's remarkably hard to kill. One tactic drown it in salt water. Another, crack open its hollow stem and drip poison down its neck.
5: So we treated the Phragmites, and you can see it was gone. It looked great.
10: We step into a muddy thicket of Phragmites with reeds towering over our heads. Mass Audubon sprayed the patch with herbicide in 2013.
5: And then all of a sudden, over the last last five years, it's come back. So it's very resilient. You need to keep after it.
10: Phragmites is a formidable foe because of its tall plants, dense stands, and deep roots. But these same traits can offer surprising benefits for climate change. Right now, there's too much carbon dioxide in the air. We need to pull it out and put it somewhere. Phragmites can store a lot of carbon in the soil when it dies, even more than native plants, according to a recent study. And there's another plus. Its dense growth can help build up marshes against sea level rise. So while many scientists remain dead set against the common reed, some are looking at this old enemy in a new way. Yeah, we try to knock it back every once in a while, but it takes a lot of time and effort and money. Nancy Pau is a biologist at the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge on Plum Island. She was one of about 30 or 40 marsh experts who gathered at the Plum Island Ecological Research Site last month to drink beer, eat pizza, and talk about wetlands. And some of these conversations now include Phragmites' role in climate change. You know, because it's such a robust grower, um, it does make a lot of biomass. And some of that gets turned into peat. It's, it's taking carbon out of the air and putting in the roots. Pau says the trade-offs are complicated. Phragmites gives off methane, a potent greenhouse gas. And the plant only stores carbon permanently when it decomposes into peat. And the peat is left alone. Powell says that keeping marshes healthy and diverse is her priority, for now anyway. So she'll keep on fighting, or treating frag, as she calls it, where she can. But other ecologists may decide differently. In the mid-Atlantic, where they are losing a lot of the marshes really quickly, there is discussions about uh, whether or not they should be treating frag, um, because it is one of the few plants that is keeping up with sea level rise. Um, And they had a very aggressive treatment plan down there. No scientist I spoke to could imagine actually planting Phragmites. But where the invader has already won, or has overtaken a mudflat or brownfield, some think maybe they should just leave it alone. Smithsonian ecologist Ian Davidson who wrote a recent paper on carbon storage in invasive plants, says context matters.
2: So there's a fairly universal agreement that we should try and reduce and prevent invasions as much as we can. But there's also the world that we have right now where they already are in certain systems. You know, this is one factor that should be considered among many.
10: Back on the marsh, Mass Audubon's Buxbaum said he bears the invader no ill will but he doesn't want to use it to fight climate change.
5: You know, to me, there's other ways to handle it. Should we be depending on an invasive species which causes a a degradation of the habitat to make up for our foibles of of, uh, emitting too much carbon into the atmosphere? Is that the right approach to take, or should we be doing
10: something to reduce our carbon? But reducing our carbon footprint quickly enough to avoid the worst consequences of climate change won't be easy. And it may mean accepting some of our old enemies. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Barbara Moran.
1: Coming up, what we can learn from the call of the bat. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The fungal disease white nose syndrome has killed off millions of bats across America. Since it was first identified in 2006, it's appeared on bats in more than 30 states, including all of New England, Quebec, and the Maritimes. Now, as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, scientists are trying to learn more about the impact of this devastating disease by listening to the calls of the bats left behind.
4: If a bat flies in a forest and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? Well, not a sound our ears can hear. That's a little brown bat, using echolocation to navigate and find food. The call is slowed down and pitch shifted so our ears can hear it. Chris Wisniewski says in Connecticut that sound used to be a lot more common.
7: Pre-white-nose syndrome, it would have been just as common as the big brown bat. We saw them to a smaller extent, but nowhere near their pre-white-nose syndrome numbers.
4: Wisniewski teaches biology at Southern Connecticut State University, and he's pretty clued into bat calls. Last year, he set up microphones all over the state, recording hundreds of hours of them. The idea was to figure out what bats are out there and what they're doing.
7: There's really not much known on Connecticut bats, especially now post-white-nose syndrome.
4: White-nose is a fungus that affects bats when they hibernate. It gets on their skin and causes bats to do odd things like fly around in the winter.
7: Because of that fungus, they're waking up from hibernation. It's you know, causing them to use all that energy. They're losing their fat stores, and they're not able
0: to bounce back from that. It's really quite devastating.
4: But what about those bats that do bounce back?
0: We're really starting to turn our attention to these surviving bats. What are they doing differently? What can we learn from them?
4: Miranda Dunbar is an associate professor of biology at Southern Connecticut State University who advised Wisniewski's research. She says over the years, scientists have developed computer programs, cataloging lots of echolocation calls. Think of it like a dictionary for bat speak.
0: It's a library of sorts. And so we can plug in our recordings of an echolocation call, and the software will match that with the known and try to match the species together.
4: And from that, Dunbar says, you can learn a lot about bats.
0: Based on the types of calls, we can figure out what exactly are they doing in those areas? How are they using that habitat?
4: Like this eastern red bat, a migratory species which popped up at microphones Wisniewski put near bodies of water on the edges of forest. Or this big brown bat, recorded feeding at Indian Well State Park in Shelton. It was by far the bat Wisniewski recorded the most.
7: They'll send out search and approach calls. But as they close in on something, or specifically an insect, they'll send out really a rapid pulse rate of their echolocation call. It's really, really rapid pulses, and it almost kind of sounds like a
4: As he recorded around the state, Wisniewski says getting lots of big brown bats confirmed other surveys in the region, and hints that big brown bats, with their larger fat reserves, appear to be better at shaking off white nose. And now that the little brown bats are essentially gone, Wisniewski says his research raises another question.
7: Are other species moving in and utilizing these ecological niches once held by that species? So are the big brown bats now moving into habitat types and taking over the role, ecological role, of the little brown bat and other species that are much less common
0: post-white-nose syndrome?
4: Dunbar says learning more about those survivors is the next step for bat research.
0: We spend so much time talking about those that have died but there are a few species and a few individuals that are surviving this disease. They must be doing something special. They must have something special that allows them to do this.
4: And while she is an optimistic white-nose syndrome will be cured anytime soon, she's hopeful bat acoustic data will continue to unlock more secrets about the bats weathering white-nose. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford.
1: Each winter in the small town of Lebanon, Connecticut, water on the historic town green freezes and becomes the perfect place for ice skating. But that picture postcard setting relies on the conditions being just right. And this summer's weird weather made them, well, just wrong. So as Connecticut Public Radio's Tucker Ives reports, the town needed to come up with a solution. And they brought in some hungry helpers.
10: So the skating pond in the location it presently is came about in the mid to late 70s by the construction of a small dam.
2: That's Betsy Petrie. She's the first selectman of Lebanon.
10: And the green used to be called the Five Mile Swamp in the 1700s. So it makes sense because all the water does collect in this general low spot of the green and does create a very nice location for a skating pond for people to use.
2: In the summertime, that section of the green serves a different purpose. Normally we, we do hay on the green. Uh, this year, uh, with the amount of water, rain, and, uh, and humidity in the, in the summer, we couldn't get hay mowed or dry. Jason Noasad is a farmer and serves the town in various capacities. It was too wet to get in there to use machinery to mow the hay, so they brought in some help. At this late time of year, decided that maybe the sheep could go out there and do the mowing. Sheep are uh, light-footed. They uh, won't make everything mud, as you see out there, there's no mud. And at the same time as they're out there mowing, they're fertilizing. For more than a week, This herd of roughly 20 sheep mowed the hay to get it ready for ice skaters. And the town of Lebanon got to experience what the green may have looked like in previous centuries.
10: You know, just an innovative way to try to accomplish something in, you know, 2018 that probably hasn't been done for 50 or 60 years. I mean, I don't think there's been any sheep legitimately out there in my entire time living here. And I've been here over 50.
2: Now that their job is done, a dam will go up to help collect water. The temporary town workers are back to their day jobs, grazing quietly a few hundred feet away at their home farm. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Tucker Ives in Lebanon, Connecticut.
1: Using sheep to mow the lawn isn't typical today across New England, but they were once just about everywhere here. Thomas Wessels is a terrestrial ecologist and professor emeritus at Antioch University in New England, and he's an expert on the
11: history of what he calls sheep fever. It's a, something that happened in central New England. So it didn't really happen in southern New England down in Connecticut, or Rhode Island, or sort of the southern tier of Massachusetts. But it did very much impact um, northern and western Massachusetts, the bulk of Vermont, the bulk of New Hampshire, and the southwestern quarter of Maine. And it's been compared to a religious fanaticism, this thing called sheep fever, because in that region, it was the first large sort of market farming opportunity for farmers, and people went bonkers about it. And there were three things that, that sparked sheep fever in central New England. The first was Napoleon going to war against uh, Spain in 1806, and it might sound odd that a war in Europe is going to have big impacts over here in New England, but the Spanish had developed a special breed of sheep called the Merino. And the merino not only made a very ample fleece, but it made wool that made woolen textiles that were not scratchy at all, like smart wool. Uh, if anyone has smart wool clothing, that's made out of merino wool. So the Spanish were very smart. They liberally exported the wool, but they had an embargo on the sheep itself. They did not want anyone to get a hold of that sheep and become a competitor with them. And uh, with the war with Napoleon, they're having trouble enforcing that embargo. And in 1810, uh, the U.S. ambassador to Portugal was a Vermonter named William Jarvis. And because of that war, he is able to smuggle uh, 4,000 Reno sheep out of Spain through Portugal to be brought back to his Wethersfield, Vermont farm. And that was the start of the sparking of sheep fever, which basically transformed central New England into one of the wool-growing regions and textile-producing regions of the world, and to give an idea how dramatic the changes are with sheep fever, in 1810, about 20% of um, central New England was open agricultural land, but still 80% forested. But in the next uh, three or four decades, those uh, 4,000 Reno sheep swelled to about 6 million. And in that period of a little over three decades, New England became – pretty much central New England became again about 80 percent deforested below 2,000 feet. So something like 60 percent of all of central New England was clear cut to make way for sheep and all the walls up – the stone fences we see up in central New England – except for the estate walls, which came in later, back in the later 19th century and early 20th century. All the woodland stone walls we see in in central New England were built in basically three decades. And uh, it's estimated it's over 125,000 miles of those woodland stone fences built during the sheep fever craze, enough that if we lined it up, it'd wrap the equator five times, uh, stretch more than halfway to the moon. And I've calculated uh, it would uh, be six times as massive if we piled it all, of all the pyramids in Egypt, and it was all done about three decades. So if um, central New England were on the Mediterranean, I have no doubt that these uh, central New England uh, woodland stone fences would be the eighth wonder of the world, but they're not. It's just an intriguing part of the history of that that portion of New England.
1: It's a fascinating history, but but I should ask, If it was a sheep fever craze, was it a a sheep fever
11: bubble? I mean, when did it burst? It did. It burst in the middle 1840s because these farms were heavily overgrazed. They had really severe erosion. For example, I think uh, out at the mouth of the Connecticut River, because of all the silt coming down from erosion of these Central New England pastures, piers for shipping had to be built out a half mile further into Long Island Sound. So with the Decreasing productivity of the farms and then uh, first the Erie Canal and then rail opening up the Ohio Valley um, and also changes with uh, textiles along with the cotton gin and things like that and cotton coming on. It suffered a huge bust which began in the middle 1840s and I think like in Vermont and very western Massachusetts – those areas lost like one half their human population between 1845 and 1855 as farmers just turned their backs on their new england farms and headed out to those stone-free rich soils out in ohio thomas wessels is a terrestrial ecologist and
1: professor emeritus at antioch university new england you can find our show wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear Go on iTunes and rate us and review us. It really helps. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Next is produced by Lily Tyson. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. We had help this week from Mike Toda. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Also, thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwabstone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, The Publix Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.